The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. We're now back with Dr. Marks talking about pain psychiatry. What types of patients would you see? I know you had mentioned people with, uh, you know, long-term chronic pain, years of pain, uh, other comorbidities. What would be a typical patient you might see, or is it just a random bag and see anybody that has pain? You know, I'd like to think that I'm a, a decent clinician for the general garden variety pain patient. My model really includes a little bit longer visits, uh, taking a more thorough social history, paying a lot more attention to environmental or social factors that contribute to uh, pain or perpetuate the functional impairment. Mm -hmm. Also, as a psychiatrist, what you may not know is that many of the medications we use for mood disorders and anxiety disorders are also used for pain conditions. We talked about them in the pain world as more adjunctive medications. But there's a lot of overlap for the medications, and sometimes I'll get referrals just because I have more experience with using these medications. Psychiatrists also have a lot of experience with treating sleep, which is often comorbid with pain patients, and they'll have some functional restoration just from improved sleep. Mm -hmm. I do find myself, I do sometimes just treat uh, energia, lack of energy. Many of the pain patients uh, develop depression and other psychiatric issues just by virtue of having to, unfortunately, live their lives with chronic pain. There's been a little bit of a shift in recent years. I'm sure you're aware of the the CDC, the Center for Disease Control Guidelines that came out in 2016, uh, really more for primary care. But the intent was to set the stage for what prudent pain practice is. And uh, since then, there's been more of a focus on keeping doses lower and really thinking twice about having patients on benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin and Valium. Uh, So I'm increasingly called upon to evaluate pain patients that are on benzodiazepines and determine whether they can find an alternative to the benzodiazepine or whether they really need to be on the benzodiazepine going forward. And I'm also called upon a lot to just determine whether a patient on a high dose is really best served on that high dose or whether it makes sense to reduce their dose. A lot of what I do is treat opioid patients who are really in need are more appropriate for more attention and monitoring. And uh, as I mentioned before, I do a a more elaborate risk stratification. And for for your listeners, risk stratification prior to prescribing opioids and really in an ongoing fashion has become a standard of care for patients that you treat with opioids, really to, to kind of, I guess, know what's in the water before you get in, to understand what an individual's risks are in terms of having opioid-related morbidity downstream. And so I do, the patients that get referred to me tend to be in the high-risk categories, and so I do a more elaborate risk stratification, and I tend to have, um, I guess, opioid treatment programs that are more tailored to patients who uh, bring a higher risk to the table. As you probably know, I mean, psychiatric disorders and psychiatric issues have always been identified in the literature uh, as increasing patients' risks for addiction or chemical coping or some types of morbidity associated with being on opioids. So I tend to see a lot of those patients in the practice I'm currently in and, and really in all the venues that I've worked because increasingly the uh, usual pain clinicians are, are 
more and more uncomfortable with treating uh, chronic pain in those types of patients. Mm-hmm. So you, you touched on risk stratification. Is yeah. there an instrument that you can use for risk stratification, such as, you know, questions or a score system or something like that? Anything that you would recommend? And, and you know, we, we don't want to go through, I know you, you do this in a very in-depth level, but is there a, a basic kind of a quick screen that our people in urgent care might use? The most commonly used one is called the opioid risk tool, and I do use that one, and I also use one called the DIRE, D-I-R-E. The, the strength of the opioid risk tool is it, it takes into account various demographic factors that have been linked to downstream problems with opioids, things like personal history of addiction, a family history of addiction. Uh, and you know one thing that's always made the literature in females really is a history of early childhood trauma, uh, more specifically uh, sexual abuse. And, you know, there are various demographic things that are identified, even age, in the opioid risk tool that uh, you could use to put together just a a rough score. I personally like the dire because it takes into account the patient's behaviors in the clinic. And that's why I use both. For example, I might have a patient that just demographically would be considered high risk, but maybe they've been in my practice or someone else's practice for 20 years and have had no problems with aberrant behaviors uh, and uh, have always been compliant and functioning very well and with a very, uh, you know, maybe a very productive life and working full time or something like that. And so on the dire, that would score you as very relatively low risk. So that's why I think the two of them go pretty well. Um, they're, they're pretty synergistic. But in an urgent care population, I, I don't know that you would need to pay attention to this as much. But if you're a primary care doctor or a primary care clinician, or you're working in a pain clinic, then it's it's really nice to have some type of standardized instrument that's that's used. And, you know, different clinics will use different ones, but it's really become a, an, it's, it's an evolving standard of care. But I think at this point uh, in 2020 to, to not do some type of risk stratification prior to embarking on a on a chronic opioid plan, then I think that would be uh, a little bit below the standard of care. The uh, acute pain patient, now that's a different story. And I know that, that a lot of that is where your world lives. I mean, it's, it's really not humane to not use powerful analgesics in a patient with a, uh, a severe acute pain syndrome. And that would obviously be a patient that, uh, you know, would warrant a powerful opioid analgesics, even in the face of what a high opioid risk tool score, or a high dire score, or just a patient that would traditionally be considered high risk for a chronic opioid management plan. Mm-hmm. This kind of plays into my next question. So I, and thank you for giving us that. I, I think for our listeners, you know, just be aware that there are instruments that you can use. So usually you have that little, and for us doing the acute pain or people that are seeking or whatever, you you kind of have that little warning bell and, and being aware of an instrument that you can use. It's always helpful. Dr. Marks, for time, let me just ask you one thing. I, I really wanted to ask you about the Suboxone. What is it? Why is it used? Do you need certifications? And is that, I don't really think it's a good treatment option for a practicing PA or NP and you know, orthopedics unless they're treating pain. But can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Suboxone, Sam, it, it, it's a brand name for a combination product of buprenorphine uh, and naloxone. Now, buprenorphine, as you know, is, is a mu receptor, opioid mu receptor partial agonist. 
and naloxone is an opioid antagonist. And then naloxone is really only put in the medicine to uh, prevent people from shooting it up and tampering with it in that way. Now, suboxone is a FDA approved for the treatment of, uh, of opioid addiction. And, you know, it's used off label for pain, but buprenorphine by itself without naloxone is available in a number of different pre preparations that are FDA approved for opioid addiction and for pain. And, and I would say that being familiar with buprenorphine would be a, 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 an important thing for a pain provider. It's certainly a useful tool to have in your toolbox. Now, you, you mentioned the thing about training and I, and I think licensing, but now if you are going to prescribe buprenorphine for addiction, for opioid addiction, then you do have to have had a little bit of training. It's, it's last I heard, it, it was an eight hour course. I mean, I'm, I'm trained in that way and I'm way to prescribe Suboxone. But, it, but it's essentially an eight-hour um, quick course. A lot of it's online. And you ha and it, they actually give you a special DEA number for it that starts with X. If you're not wavered to do it, then you really can't be prescribing buprenorphine for addiction. However, you can prescribe it for pain. And I think that's important for people to understand. As I said, you know, buprenorphine without naloxone, it's available in a lot of different preparations. And some of them are FDA approved for pain. And any chronic pain clinician can, or well, any clinician that's that's uh, got a DEA number uh, and can prescribe controlled substances can prescribe buprenorphine. Now, sometimes there's a gray area between what is treating addiction and what is treating pain, and then I think that that can be tricky. But in my personal practice, you know, I mentioned I mentioned risk stratification a few times, so which is good. I hope people kind of understand what that is, but. You know, I might I might do a risk stratification on a new patient and feel like, hmm, now this patient is appropriate for a partial agonist because, you know, they're safer in overdose and they're they're certainly safer if they fall into the wrong hands, uh, less street value, less uh, intoxication associated with them. And so there's a lot of reasons why you might think a partial agonist is preferable to a full agonist if you're concerned when you do a risk stratification. So I might do a risk stratification and say, you know, Mr. Jones, uh, I think that the best way to go is to start on this buprenorphine and I will be upfront with them and I'll tell them that, uh, you know, I'm concerned about their welfare and their, their well-being and that uh, I think that the, the benefits of buprenorphine outweigh the risks, but I'm not sure I can say that about full new agonists. The same thing happened, you know, I, I mentioned risk gratification as an ongoing process. So, you know, I might see a patient and I'm, you know, a year or two years into their treatment and things happen, some aberrant behaviors happen, and I'm getting increasingly concerned about the safety of using a full new agonist. And I might switch them to buprenorphine. And again, any any um, clinician can do this. You don't have to be wavered to prescribe suboxone to do this because I'm still using it to treat their pain. I'm just using it because it's a safer alternative to a, to a full new agonist. Does that all make sense? I think that's an important answer to your yeah, question. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I just want people to be aware of it. You know, when I see it, I, I actually don't prescribe it. Uh, I don't feel like I am comfortable prescribing that. I don't think that's something that I, uh, it's in my wheelhouse to treat. But I do want people to know about it because it's out there and you'll see patients that come through with it. So thanks for that explanation. Yeah, I mean, there there are certainly some idiosyncrasies to it. Um, you know, and, and for the listeners who have not had experience with it, it's a partial mu agonist, so it occupies the opioid, the mu opioid receptor, and it does cause essentially activation of the receptor, 
but not as strongly as a full mu agonist does. So it does cause mm -hmm. some analgesia and the other types of things that mu receptors do, but there's kind of a ceiling effect. And so, you know, you can take more and more and more of it and you're not going, it would be very, very hard to die from an overdose of buprenorphine. I'm not sure that it, that it happens. But by that same token, if you have a patient on buprenorphine and maybe they get an injury and they need a full mu agonist, then they're going to need higher doses. Now, that's another reason why your listeners might be inclined to learn about buprenorphine, because you may have buprenorphine patients coming in that into an urgent care, and they, they need some type of analgesia, but they're already on buprenorphine, which is going to antagonize the effects of what you're about to give them. So, I mean, there are some idiosyncrasies to it for patients that have acute pain syndromes or have uh, or, or are post-operative and or, or who are coming into a surgery and they're on buprenorphine. So it's a good thing to know about, even if you're not planning on directly prescribing it. Mm -hmm. All this is great stuff. I hope people are really enjoying this as much as I am. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sam. That's the kind of practice that I have. And those are the kinds of things that I think about day to day. Now, from an ortho PA standpoint, I'm, I'm not sure what the take-home message of that would be, but you do want to hold your colleagues accountable to providing good pain medicine treatment. And if you are lucky enough to be in the field of managing chronic pain, then, and I do think it's lucky because, I mean, I mean, what can be more basic than, than alleviating patients' pain? I mean, I, I mean, what could be more fulfilling in your career than to work to have patients hurt less? I, I just, I can't think of anything. You know what? Uh, I, I just got to say, gosh, bless you, because <laughs> I, I don't think I could do what you do, doctor, but you do it very you know, it, well. It, I, I mean, it. it's awesome that you do it. I mean, it. It, it has, it has, you know, like anything else, there's certainly good days and bad days, but, but, you know, hold your colleagues accountable to providing good quality pain treatment and, and just, you know, watch as the pendulum swing swings back and forth over the years. And always remember that the goal is to take good care of your patient. It's, it's not to protect your license or to, you know, appease anybody else. It's to take good care of your patient in a way that, you know, really takes into account the potential benefits and risks. Absolutely. Well said. Well said. Doctor, I appreciate your time today. This is all great stuff. My pleasure. Bye-bye, Sam. Thank you for joining the Ortho PAC podcast. Please follow the Physician Assistance in Orthopedic Surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.